Keep dialogue. Thank you all for coming out. The format that we have is uh, Dean Sam Wells and Dean William Schmiedes will have an open conversation. Um, well, they'll converse up here to each other, but you'll get to listen in. And then at the end, we have about 15 minutes for questions and answers. So as long as, if, while you're listening to the conversation, if you want to jot down questions that might occur to you, it might be helpful toward the end. But the purpose of this event is to create space, room to discuss some of the larger issues of common interest. Now, the topic is what would you do with $100 billion? But always the subtext is how do we change our world for good in our human field? So uh, I, I can introduce both these with a long list of accomplishments, for both have done quite a lot and published an incredible amount. But instead of that, I, I would like to give them more time to talk. And so without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce Dean Sam Wells and Dean William Schmidt. Bill will be fine. Bill. Um, well, Bill, um, I've talked to a number of the deans over the last couple of years doing these deans' dialogues. Uh, they've all risen to a place in their profession which most others would admire. But one thing they've all got in common, I think it's fair to say, is none of them are really doing it for the money. Uh, they're, they're all motivated by, by something else. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit. You're fairly new to the role and others may have known your predecessor, not everybody here may, may know you, and I wonder if you uh, could say a little bit about why uh, being Dean of the Nicholas School here at Duke was an attractive invitation for you, and how accepting that role fitted in with some kind of a story about, that made sense mm -hmm. about uh, your history prior to coming here. Good question, and one that I wonder about often. But, <laughs> um, so let me give you a little bit of a narrative about me, it's always fun to talk about that subject. Um, interestingly enough, when I went to college, I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I had, and when I grew up, there was a television show called The Defenders with E.G. Marshall, and it was all about a father and son team that defended the innocent. And that's what I wanted to do. When I got to college, I took a college physics class, and I kind of got taken another direction. Um, and ended up at a university, spent much of my life as a university professor doing research, um, teaching. Felt very strongly that in doing, as a scientist, I needed to be very careful about being objective about the choices of what the science made, means. And um, stayed very much away from uh, advocacy kinds of things. About nine years ago or so, I think it corresponds to some extent with the birth of my first grandchild, I started to become more and more concerned about the future of the world and what was the world going to be like with, with my, grand, my grandson at that time when he grew up, particularly as it related to global warming because the science in global warming was becoming so very, very solid. And so about three or four years ago, I retired. I gave up my endowed tenure chair at Georgia Tech, retired from Georgia Tech, never to return to academia again and went to work at Environmental Defense as their chief scientist and had a great time there. While I was there, I ran into a number of young folks who were working at Environmental Defense who were doing just great work. And I asked them where they got their education. And they told me Duke University, many of them at Nicholas School at Duke. And that sort of piqued my interest and I started to look more and more into Duke. And one of the things that I found really quite striking about Duke University was the theme that President Broadhead has announced of knowledge and service of society. 
most universities place knowledge at such a pure, high level that it, it in and of itself, is the goal. And it shouldn't be used for anything. And Duke makes a very, very different statement and says that research and education is very, very important. But it's not worth until it's actually put into service for society. And so I became interested in Duke. I became interested in the position and um, had the opportunity to come here. It's been a great experience. And it's a great, great group of people. And the, one of the things that excites me most about this position is the fact that we're training the people who are going to go out into the world and really make a difference in the future for my grandchild, grandchildren now. Tell, tell me a bit. We've got quite a few undergraduates here today, and when I talk with undergraduates, one of the things that I often find myself talking about is something that was an issue for me uh, when I was all those happy years ago. Um, it's, it's taking what you, what you referred to, I think, in your opening comments about your passion that, that you saw at that stage of, of, of leading you to become a, 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 an advocate, a lawyer, and, and taking that and then translating that passion uh, and that drive into an institutional setting. Uh, now, I come from a generation of people who thought institutions were the source of all evil um, because they killed the soul. Uh, and, and so for me, it's been quite a journey to recognize that, that actually institutions are the way of passing on wisdom from, from past to future. But you must have made a, a journey like that to, to be in a role that you're in now. Well, when I grew up, um, it was an interesting time. It was back in the 60s and 70s, and there was that sentiment about institutions. Um, I think there's a tendency, at least in universities, for lots of faculty to view themselves as being apart from the institution in the sense that they're just doing what they're doing. Um, and I, all I can say is for, for me, I found that to be unsatisfactory at a certain point. And I had to work with that institution to make a difference. It's very, very hard. <clears throat> I mean, Margaret Mead said it's really amazing how a few people with enough energy can make, make a major difference. But I think it, it's very hard to do that individually. And I think institutions are a great place to build on historical knowledge and make the change of the future. Mm. Tell, tell me a bit more about this expression, making a difference, because you could say Hitler made a difference. You yes. could say Stalin made a very big difference. Um, and you could say that making a difference is a narcissistic notion in general. It's about leaving our personal footprint on the, on, on the planet. Um, so how does one evaluate what's a good difference to it's make? a great question, a great question. And, and for, for me, it's exactly the opposite of leaving a footprint. Um, leave no footprints. Um, so, I'm an environmentalist. I'm a, you might say, a secular environmentalist. Um, I think it is a natural part of all of us, probably wired into our DNA, that we want our children to be in a good place. We want our children to be in a better place than we are. And the notion that we would leave the world, or I would leave the world, significantly worse than when I got the world, or I came into the world, is simply unacceptable to me. So in terms of making a difference, I'm thinking about 
making the world a better place for my kids, specifically as it relates to the environment. And you've, you've referred to your kids and to your grandkids uh, uh, several times already. Some would say that, of course, uh, and you've also used the word secular, some would say that in a, in a secular imagination, your kids and your grandkids are eternal life. They're, they're, they're immortality. Uh, and so would you say, would you say that, that leaving uh, a good world for one's grandchildren is a kind of purchase on immortality? Now you're trying to trap me here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say, I mean, I understand that. And um, I have to say that that's not quite what's real for me. Um, what's real for me is I feel that I have sort of a, a contract of love with my children, a contract of caring with my, for my children, and I don't fulfill that contract or that duty if I don't make sure that there's a good place for them. And um, I think the, for me, the concept of immortality is um, kind of irrelevant to what we're about here, which is, you know, the, at least this, at, at this level that we exist, it's, it seems pretty temporal to me. And if I, for instance, as a scientist, I understand that at, cert, at some point the Earth won't be here anymore, mm-hmm. and so on. So, uh, you know, I, don't, I just can't go any further than that. But I think of my children and my grandchildren as something I've got to tie to, that I have a, a job to do, and I have to fulfill that job. Well, let me put the question maybe okay. a different way. That, in my experience, the, the environmental questions are very divided um, in, in, in a way that, on the one hand, you've got people who say um, global capitalism is terrible. Uh, and um, you know, they often appear at uh, G8 meetings, for example, and campaign very loudly. However many in number they are, they always get in the cameras because we don't get a chance to have pictures of the leaders discussing, so we take pictures of the protesters instead. Um, and, and that's a kind of across-the-board critique again, often a secular critique of, uh, of lifestyle, of consumerism, and, and the whole package, um, which seems utopian because it's asking people to be totally selfless, and it's not relating to the, to the world that most people live in. On the other hand, you've got a very hard nose. This is in your own interest. Your own business is going to go bust in 20 years. Uh, and so on. You know, and, and I suppose I see the appeal to one's grandchildren as a kind of mixture of the selfless and the, and the selfish. Selfish, yeah. Great question, great question. So um, once again, I'm going to try to narrow that a little bit, if that's okay. So a statement like global capitalism is a bad thing is sort of a political ideological statement and I don't find it very useful. Um, I can use the example of the environment. I mean, there are other examples outside the environment. So when I'm concerned, my concern about the environment, what do I want? I want a better environment, or I want to preserve the environment. I don't care how we do that. And if we can devise a system whereby human greed, if you want to be extreme about it, or capitalistic motives can be harnessed in a way to protect and preserve the environment. That satisfies my desire as much as saying we, we can't have any, you know, the government has to control everything to protect the environment. What is the most effective way of doing it? And I think you can make some very, very um, cogent arguments that in fact, 
using the marketplace and using capitalism in the proper way to incentivize good behavior is a more effective way of protecting the environment than through regulation. So um, there are these other issues that are ideological and are great to talk about, but I, I think in, quite often are not necessarily relevant to really making a difference. <laughs> Could you talk about that incentivization thing, push us a, a bit further? Sure. This, is, this being America, of course, we all think regulation is a terrible thing. But incentivization and supporting the market has got to be a good thing. Well, so me, how would we go about that? Let me put that? it in a little bit of context, and let's talk about global warming, for example. So the problem with global warming, in a simplistic sense, is that we're burning, power plants are burning fossil fuels, and they're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it's causing this problem. Well, what's really happening is the carbon dioxide is going into the atmosphere, and it's degrading the environment. And in, in the process of degrading the environment, it's costing all of us something. So what we really have is we now have a perverse marketplace where, where some people are able to pollute the environment and basically we're subsidizing them to do that. It's like a government subsidy because we're not charging them at a real price. So in terms of incentivizing, what I would argue is what we're really trying to do is really trying to put the marketplace back on an even keel, and which is to say if you want to put carbon into the atmosphere, you've got to price, pay the price for doing that. I would say you do that through a cap-and-trade system. Others would say a tax, but you know, we can, that's a, a le another level discussion. But um, I think that a lot of the sins of capitalism, and there's no question there have been lots over the, over the years, and there still are, is because of that, in fact, it's a poorly devised marketplace where the real costs of what people are doing in terms of oppressing people and what that means in terms of the global economy, wherever is not being properly accounted for. And so what our job is is to make sure that we have a, a marketplace where the real costs are taken into account. And are there issues there about the nation state that we've, we've been very exercised about our own national boundaries and about maybe the waters around our respective countries? We haven't worried before too much about the sky above our countries. Right. Or what's going on in other countries, yeah. I mean, it, it really tickles me somewhat when people complain, for example, of all the increase in pollution coming from China. Well, a significant fraction of that pollution is really our pollution. They're, you know, their factories are putting the pollution in their homes, in their, their sky, and then sending the products to us for us to use, and we actually want them to do that pollution because we want their products. So, I mean, especially now that we're in a global economy, I think it's very, very naive to talk about um, separate activities in separate nations. Now, um I'm, I'm picking up a, a pragmatic uh, feel to a, to a number of your comments. Can I push you on, on some of the, 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 you know, the, the philosophical issues here? The very word environment presupposes that humanity is the center of the story and the environment is everything that's outside us. Is that fair? No. <laughs> no, I think we are part of the environment. Um, and that's why we come, that's why one can come to this from a more practical point of view and understand that our, the sustainability of our society is intimately tied to the environment. For example, here's, here's one statistic. There's something called ecosystem services. So ecosystems give us, free of charge, a variety of things like clean water, arable land, they pollinate the crops, they give us air we can breathe, they give us fisheries and a variety of other things. By some estimate, and it's not trivial to estimate it, but by some estimate, 
The ecosystem services that we get as a society, free of charge, is equivalent to perhaps as much or twice as much as the global gross national product. The gross, the gross product of all the nations of the world combined is very likely less than what we get free of charge from ecosystem services. So if the ecosystems degrade, we're going to have to, have to find some way to replace those services with real money. Um, a great example is what happened in New York City back in the early 90s. New York City gets its water from the Catskills, upstate New York, in a big watershed. And in the 90s, it was discovered that the water that New York City was getting, the quality was degrading, because primarily because of farms and so forth were polluting the rivers. And so they said, well, we need to put in a water purification plant for this water for New York City. And, the, and it turned out that the cost would be in the billions and billions of dollars. So some very, very smart ecologists came along and said, you know what? For a fraction of that cost, what we're going to do is we're going to replenish the forests and the ecosystems in this watershed in the Catskills for a fraction of the cost, and you'll have just as clean water. And in fact, it worked. So from a very practical point of view, we are part of the environment, but we depend upon the environment, and we need, it, we need to take care of it just like we take care of our home or something like that. Now, I think there's another piece to this, and, and I, I probably haven't said it, is clearly there is a spiritual part to the environment. There's an inspirational part to the environment that, um, that we all share, in, which I think is also very, very, very important. I think it's harder to use that as a way of negotiating these environmental issues. But I think it's a very important part of, it's why one of the, part of my passion for the environment comes from the fact that it's a beautiful place. Mm -hmm. Now, um, perhaps to be a little bit more controversial, the, the, um, the old fashioned approach to national defense is that you, um, everybody gets on with their ordinary lives and you employ uh, the military to keep you safe, defend your borders, seek out and destroy anyone on the other side of the world who looks dodgy, and, and, and so on. Uh, that's the conventional approach to national defense, and it's worked for a number of hundred years. Um, better for some countries than for others, to be, if, uh, to be fair. Um, uh, but then when one has a thing called terrorism, that doesn't work anymore because you don't know where they are. They're not coming from overseas. They're among, they're among us. Uh, and I wonder if, it's, if one could use a similar analogy about the environment and, and, and the, the global ecological crisis. That in the good old days, we'd in, we had a national problem. We'd employ a bunch of people, either the government would or the market would, would provide, uh, and they'd sort it out for us. But the global ecological crisis isn't, doesn't, it's not something one can delegate, as far as I can tell. Uh, we all, we all, it's more like terrorism. We all have to actually take responsibility for, for addressing it ourselves. Is that a, a fair analogy? I think that's, that's very fair. I think, um, I mean, first of all, one of the really perplexing parts of, for example, global warming is, um, you know, even if our government wanted to do something about it, hopefully that will change soon, um, we can't do it ourselves. I mean, we, ha we have to involve China and India, otherwise it's not gonna work. So the fact that we have some sovereign control over this is, is illusory, we don't. We all have to work on it together. It's, it, it's actually, 
you know, whether you like people, whether you like the other people or not, you got to sit down and come to an agreement. Otherwise, this is this going to be bad for everybody? It's more like an invasion from Mars. Yes, it's more like an. But well, it's an invasion from Mars, but it, it's it's like an invasion of ourselves. Yeah. You know, I mean, because we're we're doing it, so it's a matter of changing how we do things. Um, I think personal action is really important. Um, I think, given the nature of the way people work, I think some sort of larger policy regulation is needed to get people to sort of move together rather than to feel that they're, you know, the Lone Ranger riding their Prius or something. <laughs> um, so I, I do think we're all in this together, and we need to recognize that, but I also think we need to be all in this together and to tell our Congress folks that they need to do something about it and they need to do something about it fast because we need to, for example, cause capitalism to work right instead of wrong. But so, so uh, there's, there's an element of delegation there because the policymakers will, will sort this. I, mean, I, I guess the, I the, the worry is, uh, I guess what's holding us back isn't so much you know, which party will be elected uh, uh, you know, in November, but but uh, I'm going to have to pay. I, I, I like to go to England. I like to see my family. I'm going to have to pay five times as much to do that if we're uh, if we're going to have some kind of carbon tax that's going to going to restrain it's, me from doing that. It's possible. It's it, it, it's likely. It's not going to be that expensive. But yeah, we're going to have to change some things. I think um, the the beauty of um, these types of regulations is that it sparks a lot of innovation. You know, every air pollution bill that we've ever passed in the United States that I know of has turned out to be much less expensive than it was originally thought because as soon as the reality sets in, people recognize they can make a profit by innovating, and they do, and things can become less cheap, less, less expensive. So, you know, I think it is going to have an impact. We're going to spend more for a variety of things. We're, you know, we're, we're going to drive different kinds of automobiles. We'll probably have perhaps less SUVs, maybe not, I don't know. Um, but I don't think it's going to, I think you're still going to be able to go back home occasionally. I hope. <laughs> maybe not, you know. Yeah, well, but, you'll have, but you'll have a really good video teleconferencing facility in your house. That's, um, that's very gratifying. Um, <laughs> Holo holographic. Even better. It's getting better all the time. Um, the, I mean, now we've talked a little bit about your institutional role, and we've, we've just touched on the, the, what you referred to as the spiritual dimension of the environment, and uh, we've talked about influencing legislators. I, I'd like to bring us round to the question on the side of the tin for today, um, the question of what you do with $100 million, because it seems to me that most of the things... Um, that you've been talking about, with the exception of, of certain <clears throat> um, responses to legislation, which would involve companies changing uh, some of their equipment and so on, um, they're not fundamentally about money. You, you've talked about the sins of capitalism and so on, but those seem to me, sins traditionally can't be bought off with a checkbook. They, can, they require a change of heart. So... Um, does it, how does money help? Okay, well, I've, come, I've, I've thought about this actually fairly lengthily. I never heard that expression, the question on the tin. Yeah, well, that's... I thought that was an American expression, but I'm learning it's, all the things I grew up thinking were American expressions turn out not to be. 
They're probably American expressions from too long ago. Not in New York City, I can tell you. <laughs> okay, so, um, well, the first thing is, so we want to change the world. And it turns out it's $100 million is not, doesn't go that far when you're changing the world. So here, here's my process and illustrative of what I might do. And that is to identify an issue in the environment that's requiring some attention and then figuring out how $100 million will do this. Now, let me start out by saying that certainly one of the great problems we have in the world is disparity in income and poverty. Um, the environment is very, very tightly coupled to that. And if we don't take care of the environment, it's very, likely, very unlikely that we'll be able to eliminate poverty anyway. So, if I look out over the next couple of decades and I think about what environmental impact or issue is going to affect the most people the most severely around the world, I would come up with water, water availability, water pollution. Um, I think that the, the environmental issue of our generation is climate change, and we need legislation to address climate change. But even if we stopped emitting all greenhouse gases today, the world would continue to warm for 30 years. We need to do adaptation. And the, of all the impacts of climate change, the one that I think is going to be most severe for the largest number of people will be the change in the water cycle and the increasing intensity of droughts, um, higher temperatures, and therefore decreasing water quality, uh, storms, greater storms, and floods, and therefore diseases from that as well. So I think the greatest problem that people are going to be facing in the next 20 or 30 years is going to be water management, um, which is a global problem in a sense, but it's also a regional problem, a local problem, in that you need to have management practices in all these different locations. And coming up with good, good water management uh, practices involves understanding climate, understanding hydrology, understanding ecosystems, proper urban planning, and on down the line, policy, law, a variety of other things. So, what can $100 million buy you if, you, if you're worried about that? Not very much. Um, billions and billions of dollars are being spent by a variety of agencies to put in a variety of big projects, you know, dams and reservoirs and water treatment plants all around the world. And $100 million is a drop in the bucket. The real problem is it's fine to have a big water project and to build a big water filtration system or to give a lot of money to a given locality to develop a water management plan. The problem is, who's there who understands the environment and the political systems and the social systems who can work with that big pot of money and make it work effectively? And I think in most places around the world, you'll find that there aren't. In fact, there's lots of stories where some agency has gone in and they plunked down a billion dollars worth of stuff in some town and it's still sitting there because no one knows what to do with it. So here's my idea for $100 million. We have found that um, to train someone, which we call a professional environmental manager at Duke, costs about $50,000. So you remember the expression, a thousand points of light from the first President Bush. So here's 2,000 points of light. We take $100 million and we train 2,000 environmental managers from not necessarily from Americans, but from around the world with the understanding that after their training they go back to their hometowns. And we send those 2,000 people out to the world to manage water in a good, good way, an effective way with good environmental stewardship and they become like an army to spread the environmental ethic around the world. And that's my $100 million. 
So the, the solution is, is, uh, doesn't require a change of heart. It requires increased skills. Do you want yes. to say a bit more about that? Sure. I think that um, in the case of water, for example, well, that's a good point. So how, how you, it probably, I'm sorry, let me start again. You got me here. I hadn't expected that one. So um, a change of heart probably is, is needed. I mean, obviously here in Durham, we've got a water problem and we need people to conserve water. And I think that's important. Um, but you need people, professionals, who understand how to do effective management in order to marshal that change of heart and marshal the investment to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of examples where people with good intentions have done ineffective or actually counter-effective measures for the environment simply because they didn't understand how the system works. So I think we really need this kind of person who also is actually there in a way to in fact affect change of heart as well. If someone is a good environmental manager, they're gonna be working with communities and developing. Many of the environmental managers end up working with NGOs and their whole, their whole business is changing, mm -hmm. changing heart as well as policy. So we need those folks in those various places to make it happen and I think that individual Placing individuals around the world is going to be far more effective than a major global campaign, for example. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, just to, just, just to push you on that a little bit more, going back to the analogy I used of the, the old-fashioned approach to war, we're, the same thing. Yeah. we're training a good number of soldiers there. We're training soldiers. That's exactly right. We're training soldiers. Um, and we're, at, we're assuming that those soldiers, like soldiers used to do, would come back and tell stories of battle and, and show and make a make this a country fit for heroes to live in and, and, and do what what old no, soldiers we, do. We send I mean, them out, but in, the, yeah, but, but in the sense that we they will inspire, they will diffuse, right. they but will enthuse. I would actually think of them as infiltrators. Okay, so rather we're not, than rather than soldiers, we're not delegating them to do it all for us. That's the that's that's the, right. That's no, I would I'm, think of them as infiltrators that. Um, their job is to enter a community and make sure that community acts effectively, but in, in the process, you know, spark the kind of environmental stewardship that's needed around a variety of other issues and um, become part of that community and, you know, be a virus within that community rather than, rather than come back and tell stories. Do you know um, the extraordinary sense that I get in this conversation is that the role of these environmental managers is uh, when St. Dunstan set up the parish system in England in the 10th century, that was exactly what he imagined as the role of the parish priest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are, these are kind of parish priests who are sent to save the world. That's right. And that's, we have um, some MEM students here, I'm sure, and they think of themselves kind of like as parish priests. So. That's, I think that's a great that, analogy. That's very that's interesting. Well, um, I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to ask uh, Yal to, uh, to speak to somebody within range or somebody you brought along with you uh, and, and just work out between you what's the, 
what's the question you'd like to, to ask or the point that, that hasn't been made that you'd like to make. We'll do that for a couple of minutes and then the lovely Gaston will come down and, uh, and handle some questions and uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll do that together for, for 15 minutes or so. Okay, so have a, have a chat to the person within range. Talk about yourself. And, uh, talk, about, talk amongst yourselves. Is that what? Yeah, this is? talk talk amongst yourselves for a little bit, and and then we'll generate some questions. <laughs> okay, if if you've been able to formulate some questions, um, what we can do now is have have some question and answer periods. What I'd like to do, to ask you to be able to do, if you could come up and talk into the microphone, because we're recording this, and then your wonderful question will be available for all, and we want to make sure that happens. So if you don't mind, if you're able to come to the microphone for questions, that would be helpful. Well, I'm Wasim, and I'm from Pakistan, and my question to you is, when you ask for environmental ethics promotion, are you in a way asking for the promotion of polite culture as well, because there is a lot of violence in other parts of the world? I don't, I don't understand the question. Try it again. Like, when you, when you say it is about environmental ethics and promotion of environmental ethics, is it also about the promotion of polite cultures in the world? Polite culture? Yeah. Because there is too much violence in certain parts well, of the world. Think, so. Well, I think that probably polite is an interesting word related to <laughs> as a, in, in, op, in opposition to violence. But um, one of the best ways to degrade the environment is to have a fight. To have? Have a fight. Have a war. A battle. You know, a riot um, is a great way to damage the environment in a significant way. Mm -hmm. So certainly... Um, that you know, we need to cut out all that war stuff. We just need to cut it out. Yeah. I don't know how to do that, but we need to. Yeah, so. but then how do we, how do we first of all break the barriers? Because in my part of the world, the biggest barrier is the political violence. So then we talk of the environment. Well, it's an excellent question, and I don't have an easy answer to that. Um, I guess we could say we would send our parish priest there, but um, <laughs> it, that, that might not work out so well. Yeah. So it, I think peace, unquestionably, unquestionably, is a um, prerequisite for worrying about, for taking care of the environment. I don't think there's any question about that. And I don't think $100 million would help us very much. <laughs> but that's an excellent question. Sam, I wonder if you could comment on what you would do if you had $100 million to advance the, uh, the same topic, e the ecologic, environmental uh, hey, hey, hold betterment. On. Hey, I asked the questions. <laughs> uh, this is not what it said on the side of the tip. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I think I would have a very similar answer, and, and, and I guess my comments about the parish priest would model that's that's the life that I served prior to coming to Duke a couple of years ago, and I did it because that's that's what I believed in that uh, 
uh, it's a wonderful thing if every community has a sort of animator, facilitator, facilitator person who, uh, whose role it is to, to unearth and to encourage all that's good in that community and, 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 and let, those, let those flowers bloom. Obviously, from my Christian perspective, I'm, I'm, ori- I'm, I'm directing that to, to worship um, rather than simply the maintenance of the environment, although I'm very much aware that maintenance of the environment is a form of worship for a great many, and perhaps an increasing number of people. Um, I am a little anxious, however, just as in the church, there's always the problem that the, that the holy stuff is somehow delegated to the priest or to the pastor, uh, and that if people... Um, don't believe that the holy things the priest or the pastor does, like hearing confession or celebrating the mass or um, preaching the word or whatever, if they don't believe in those things anymore, they kind of recreate the, the, the clergy family as this model of behavior. And there are enough um, pastor's kids uh, at Duke who know uh, how strange that can be to be reinvented as this model of, uh, uh, of the perfect life. Uh, but those are all different ways of delegating to an individual or a, or a household something that really the whole idea was should be shared by by everybody. And and my concern about about uh, some you know I think came out of my questions. My concern about Bill's pragmatism is that uh, it, it managing the environmental crisis uh, you know is in danger of delegating it as it were to the arm. And I guess my my religious presuppositions would say whenever you're delegating something like that to individuals, you're, you're in danger of, of, of missing the point. I, 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 I'm one of those who perhaps rather piously and uh, utopianly, if that's an, adject, uh, an adverb, um, is, wants to see this environmental crisis as, a, uh, as an opportunity for uh, for renewal, I mean, the, the, uh, the conventional theological word is repentance, mm-hmm. uh, a, a transformation in our humanity's relationship to the creation, uh, which those of you who have heard me speak regularly will, will know I, I would want to use Augustine's words and say it's time we once again uh, learnt to enjoy the creation rather than simply to use it. Um, and I think that time has come. Let me just say, if I can, a couple of things. Um, yeah, I think that I, 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 there's a lot of resonance for me with what you said. I, in addressing these global problems like climate change, um, there is going to have to be a global repentance, if you will, or change. For example, you might not be able to fly home as often as you want to. Um, there is going to have to be some changes. Um, and so I think that's part of the solution, but I also think that in order to limit the suffering that people will feel as a result of what we've already done, we're going to need professionals, army infiltrators or parish priests, if you will, environmental priests, in these various localities to help people do that, which in and of itself is not going to be sufficient to take care of this crisis. There's also going to have to be this larger change in the way we do things, in the way we treat energy and we conserve. I have to say I, I like 
the concept of the, the parish priest. I think that's a, a wise way of, of spending that $100 million. But uh, I'm a cynic, and my cynicism is that I think so many of I would like your opinion about it. it seems that we have we have had so many environmental problems in our own lifetimes that we know there are solutions for those. But the problem is, without political will, we cannot achieve those solutions. And we we can take the appropriate information to the people in charge, but if they have no desire to do anything with that information will never accomplish it. These parish priests will not, they, they can only be so effective at a very small scale. We need big scale thinking right now for global problems. And I'm afraid without political will, is it really a solvable problem? Well, once again, I would say that there are different levels of problems. And I think that we do need political change and political will, and we do need global action. Um, and you could spend, you know, one of the things you could do is you could spend $100 million easily trying to pass the legislation that's needed in the United States. And I was in environmental defense, and, you know, after the, we, we, we didn't quite come up to $100 million, but, you know, we were heading in that direction. Um, so I, I think that's part of the equation. But I think this is like, like the current administration has undermined so many excellent legislation of that type from the past. No, I said that that's part of the answer. Part of the problem is to get that legislation passed. I think that legislation is going to be passed. And I am hopeful that there will be a global treaty sometime around 2011 that will be far better than Kyoto that will mandate decreases in emissions. There's a lot of folks, a lot of folks working on that problem, okay? As a, for example, I was in environmental defense and we spent you know, easily 50% of our time working that problem. My concern is even if after you take care of the problem, what's gonna happen to all these people around the world that are gonna have to deal with the impacts even if we address the global warming problem in terms of emissions? And that's where I think we have the best leverage with that small amount of money. $100 million is a tiny amount of money. So I wasn't given the option of saying, what would you do with $100 billion? If I was given $100 billion, you know, I, you know, I might say I'll give you know, $50 to everybody to vote for, for some legislation or something. <laughs> okay, so That's uh, what's uh, sometimes called democracy. Right, right. So, <laughs> so I've only given $100 million. For $100 million, I think the best thing we can do with that $100 million is leverage it into people who are going to go work in communities to help manage the environment, steward the environment, and limit the suffering that these people are going to feel as a result of the stuff we've already done. But I don't argue with you. There are many, many problems out there. But this is what you can do for $100 million. $100 million is not going to buy you legislation in the U.S. It's not going to get a treaty passed. in, in uh, Kyoto, too, is not going to get passed with $100 million. But we can produce 2,000 people to go around the world and help, help people with the environment. Mm -hmm. I can't just say from here. Can't you speak loud? Okay, I said loud. <laughs> okay, um, actually, I was just curious, and this is actually, I just want a real good, well formed question, but um, uh, what Dean Wells had said about that's really what we're looking for is a change of heart, not so much 
uh, what did you say? So making the change in the world, not through the money, but that the change requires a change of heart. And then I come back to, well, how do you create a change of heart? And I come back to, well, you need money to create a change of heart on some kind of global scale. And so then I get back to, as maybe, would, when we're talking about changing the world, would you actually ask a different question than what would you do with $100 million? Or is that the question that you would ask, that you would have a panel of really smart people ask? Would you ask them what would you do with $100 million? Or would you ask another question? Does that make sense? Is that addressed to me? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, right. Yeah, that's sure. Uh, just, just checking. Um, well, I guess uh, the, the quest, this question arose in, in the fact that it's a question I'm asking to deans of professional schools at, at, at Duke, and, and that's one thing that deans all deal with is, is annual budgets, and they all actually have to ask themselves this question uh, one way or another uh, every year. Uh, more faculty, more facilities, more resources, uh, or, or a campaign uh, to knock on the provost store and knock down that door and, and, uh, and invade the Allen building or, or something of that kind. All of those things are possible with this sort of sum of money. So that, that's, that's how the question arose. Um, uh, but, I mean, uh, you know, my colors, uh, I've already put my, my colors on the table in terms of uh, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a legislator, uh, I, I, and I, I actually don't think uh, that, as I hinted in the question I asked Bill earlier, that this is really a question fundamentally about money. Um, because as, as when, we, you know, when we we're sort of pushing Bill just now, what would you do the, with the money to change the legislation other than bribe the voters? That's, that's a little bit hard to say. One of, one of the questions, I think, about the environmental crisis is, are we on the Titanic? are we actually heading towards the iceberg? And some people would say, yes, we are. We, we're, we're actually, you know, within a few miles of the iceberg, within 20 years of the iceberg, shall we say. We've got, say, 20 years, some people would say, to uh, change direction, not necessarily turn and face the other way. Well, what's, the, what's the, the right way to address that? I mean, some would say, this is drastic. We've got to, we've got to go to the bridge. We've got to seize the controls. Uh, others would say well, we really need to change our whole mindset about how we, uh, how we run ships. Um, because the, 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 the Titanic arose through a whole, you know, through the projection of a certain kind of blindness, arrogance, pride, uh, you know, which was all then focused on having this glory ship. You know, I'm perhaps overstretching the analogy. But um, Bill is, is pushing us, I think, to... To, to see how we can avoid the, the, ice, the icebergs in general. <laughs> and that seems to me a very good, good approach, I guess, I'm, because I'm a theologian and a, and a, and a, and a pastor rather than uh, a, a, you know, a, an administrator and, a, and an educator. I would, uh, I would tend to go, want to go a little bit further back and let, let's say, well, what, what is this whole racing ships business all about? <laughs> and ask some more fundamental questions about you know, the nature and destiny of human existence, I guess. But uh, um, I'm, 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 and, and those aren't questions fundamentally about money. But I think it's a mistake, especially in a private university, to put questions about money off the table because the, um, 
the critique would always be, well, that's easy for me to say in a role like mine, <laughs> uh, you know, because I don't see the money I have and the people that I can influence. So uh, I was keen to keep the money, the, the dollar sign in the question for exactly that reason. It's actually an interesting question. I was just sort of reflecting, um, even though I was in environmental defense for a while and an advocate, and I still am an advocate in some things, um, I don't think of myself as being in the heart business, you know, in terms of changing people's hearts. I mean, I, I, I see myself in the, in the sense of trying to convince people that the science on climate change is significant, the danger is real. Um, there's things you can do in your own life to make a difference. But I don't normally think of myself as being in the change of heart business. That's, you know, that's a little far akin to me. In, in terms of the analogy of the, the um, Titanic, it's interesting because actually there wasn't necessarily anything wrong with the Titanic. It, it was the way it was used. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if um, the warnings, the early warning signs were heeded, there was plenty of time to change the course on the Titanic. And I think that's, you know, I think that's where we're at right now. I think if we don't change our course, in 20 years we'll be in big trouble and we're going to need to do some drastic things, if anything. Um, but right now we're in a position where we can slowly change the course of our ship. And over time, you know, in terms of climate change, we're going to have to be working on lowering emissions and, and greenhouse gases for the next rest of the century. And as long as we do it slowly, every year, percent, two percent, two percent, two percent, we can do it in such a way that you know, we're not going to get knocked off the ship. The ship is going to go pretty smoothly. And we're going to get, by the time we get to the end of the century, by the time we get to the other side of the ocean, there'll be a nice new boat for us that doesn't need coal, that runs on some clean you know, and, and is sustainable materials and everything. We just have to get there. And we need to change our course slowly to get there. And we can do that. So I agree with you, it's a crisis, but it, it's, there's time for us to do something about it. And I also think that, um, for me, it's hard to change hearts. I don't, I don't understand how you do that. It's your business. But um, I do understand that you can change incentives. And you can change the marketplace in a way that causes people to change whether they, it's a change of heart or not. So. Well, I've, I've enormously enjoyed my conversation with Bill. And I'm very grateful you. for you to... For, for your wisdom and understanding. Gaston's going to finish us off with a few closing remarks. Absolutely. Before I do that, we, we thank Dean Wells and Dean Schmidt. We greatly appreciate you all letting us listen in on the conversation and participate. Uh, the next Dean's Dialogue, in case you're interested, it's April 9th. It'll be in the School of Law with Dean Levy. And there's sign-up sheets on the table right there in the middle and right on the table in the front. If you'd like to be emailed about uh, similar events to this, just sign your name there. Duke Chapel also has an environmental stewardship committee that's newly formed. And if you'd like to participate in that, just, just say that next to your name. You know, environmental stewardship, that's all you need. And, 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 I'll, and I'll know that, and I'll send you some information about it. We appreciate you coming taking time to talk about these larger issues of common concern, and we are always interested in ways to keep this conversation alive, and so if you have ideas in that vein, let us know and let's have a conversation about that. So thank you very much, and thanks again for these. Thank you. Thank you. Great time. Really great. You too. You have a good time.
Please take pizza on your way out. <laughs>